Hello and welcome to another edition of podcast from the edge with me, Peter Bruce. There's little doubt about what to talk about this week, and I'm very fortunate to be able to welcome a special guest back to the show. Professor Shabir Mahdi is not only a world-renowned vaccinologist, he's also Dean of the Faculty of Health Science, that's, that's medicine to listeners overseas, at the University of the Witwatersrand in Joburg, a faculty which continues to turn out some of the best doctors in the world. Shabir Mahdi is also very good for South Africa. He's able to cut through much of the thickness of the science around the coronavirus pandemic and to talk straight to ordinary folk like you and me. He was initially one of former health ministers William Keyes' medical advisory council members back in 2020, but later dropped because, well, we know more about William Keyes' judgment now. But it was a scandalous thing to do to a top advisor, probably because a good, you know, the good minister didn't always like the advice he was getting. Again, Prof. Mahdi, thank you so much for joining me here today. We're going to talk a bit about the new variant driving a fourth wave now in Gauteng and causing much alarm around the world. But before we get to it, can I ask you just a, a basic question about viruses and how they mutate? Why do they, what's the point of the mutation and what are the ideal conditions for mutation? Uh, so good afternoon, uh, Peter, and thanks for having me. Uh, so I'll for viruses to develop mutations is not uncommon. In fact, there's been thousands of mutations that have already uh, transpired in SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, most of which has gone by unrecognized. And these sort of mutations really result as a consequence of a misreading of the genetic code as the virus is replicating. So this is something that happens all the time, not just for SARS-CoV-2, for all of the other viruses. Unfortunately, there are some mutations which then uh, result in a virus gaining some sort of strategic advantage uh, in terms of either being able to uh, infect hosts more successfully or to evade uh, immunity uh, that might be directed against it by the host. And it is those more strategic uh, mutations, which again is largely a consequence of uh, errors in, in the replication process, of the virus uh, that then becomes of interest to us. Now, when we talk of these uh, mutations that are of clinical relevance, it's mutations which either makes the virus more transmissible, for easier for a virus to spread and to infect people, or alternatively, as I mentioned, uh, mutations that allows the virus to somehow evade uh, immunity. But at the same time, I think we just need to be cautious. We think of immunity as a single entity, but immunity against the virus involves a multiple different components of the body, uh, include, and including what we refer to commonly as antibody-mediated immunity, which is what we sort of start developing after we've been infected or vaccinated. But in parallel to that, there's also called something called T-cell immunity, and they work in very different ways, and they've got different functions in terms of how they assist the host. Uh, in preventing at least severe disease or whether they work in protecting against infection. And infection and severe disease are very different entities in the sort of uh, process of uh, a virus infecting an individual. So, so what has happened here is, though, then, is that Omicron would have entered somebody's body in one form and come out in another form. 
So it uh, enters correct. in as it enters as delta and comes out as a micron. Yeah, and interestingly, with Omicron, uh, it's not even having entered as delta. So they're able to sort of map uh, the variant in relation to the viruses that have been circulating since the beginning of the pandemic. And this Omicron, in fact, is most closely related genetic, sort of what I would call a cousin, is uh, a virus that circulated early in 2020. Uh, so this uh, variant is not even evolving from the more recent variants that have been of clinical relevance, but it actually is sort of more falls into a family of viruses uh, that were circulating as early as uh, mid-2020. So the reason why it's arisen right now, obviously it's completely by chance, but it might well be that this variant has been around before and only for some reason or another gaining real traction uh, at this point in time. And, and and Prof, does every new wave of of this of this pandemic have a new variant? In other words, Delta can't reoccur. Uh, no, it certainly can. To some extent, okay. what have, what uh, variant is going to dominate depends on the extent to which the variant has sort of uh, run through the community to start off with, uh, the extent to which people have developed uh, immunity against it to prevent infection or to reduce the ability of people to transmit the virus if they re-expose it. So if you look at what's happening in the United Kingdom and Europe at the moment, they're experiencing another resurgence. And that resurgence they're currently experiencing after a lull of a few months, in fact, still is mainly the Delta variant, okay. despite the Delta variant having been responsible for the previous resurgence. So uh, this, this is a really complex process. There's multiple flag factors at play uh, over and above just the virus. It's also about population immunity and the extent to which that immunity is able to not necessarily only protect people against developing severe disease, but also prevent infections. And unfortunately, both for vaccines as well as natural infection, uh, they work less well in protecting against reinfection, even from the same uh, variant. Yeah. Uh, especially when over a period of time you get this waning of antibodies. And as the antibodies wane, do the, does anything happen to the T cells or do they just do carry on doing their job? So for, for, both the, the, for both the antibody, which is usually produced by B cells and the T cells, you actually have also what we call memory cells, and that is very important. So even though you got this waning of antibody as an example, which could create a window period in which people become susceptible to being infected even with the same variant, these memory cells kick in very rapidly. So the first time you expose the virus, it takes about two to three weeks for these antibodies to actually kick in. Whereas when you re-expose to the virus, uh, these antibody responses because of those underlying memory cells kicks in within a period of two to three days. And that's also the reason why we're advocating for mandatory vaccination, because the consequence of that earlier antibody response results in the ability of that person to stop replication of the virus much sooner compared to someone that hasn't been vaccinated or hasn't been previously exposed to the virus. So these antibody responses, like I said, after you've been previously primed, either through natural infection or through vaccines, you get a much quicker antibody response, and the quality of that antibody response is also probably superior than what was induced the first time around, which means it would probably have even heightened activity against the virus, and particularly if it's the same variant that's now a person is being re-exposed to. Yeah. So, so we'll come to the mandates in a, in a minute. But um, so, do the do all mutations automatically imply that they are more dangerous, or could they, in fact, could this very 
you know, could all of the mutations on this particular variant imply a sort of a weakness almost? I mean, does it uh, necessarily have to be dangerous? If some, with some organisms, if they undergo multiple mutations, they actually become less virulent. So they might continue being able to cause infections, but they become less virulent, they're less likely to cause severe disease. And that is, in fact, good for a host as well as for a virus. Because on the part of the virus, uh, your body is not going to try to attack it that too much, your immune system. And on the part of the host, it becomes more of a, a, a virus that causes sort of clinically non-significant illness, such as the endemic coronaviruses or a common flu virus known as rhinovirus. Those are viruses that also undergo mutations, but the type of mutations they undergo doesn't make it more virulent, so it, it remains more of a nuisance. And that is what we would like SARS-CoV-2 to, be, to become, a nuisance virus, rather than yeah. one that is still has a propensity yeah. to cause severe disease. But like I said, on the other hand, mutations can confer an advantage that makes it more transmissible and more virulent. Right now, none of the variants have resulted uh, in a virus that has become much more virulent than an ancestry virus. It, it's interesting because when it's very, obviously, just very... Um recent and anecdotal but all of the recent cases that i've heard of in particularly in gauteng one of a party of um, 20 year 25 year olds uh, one of whom i know 16 or 17 um, young women had to get together um 10 days or so ago they literally all got sick um uh, but they're all fine and presumably it, it would have been this well, just, uh, I mean, we just need to be a bit cautious in how we interpret it. Obviously, these are women that are in a, a, a relatively young age group demographic, no underlying medical conditions. So even if it were due to other variants, uh, they probably would have been infected and also would have been remained mildly symptomatic at best, yeah. Uh, yeah. at worst rather. But in addition to that, another factor that we also feel that features now is that probably all of them have been vaccinated. And yes, if not vaccinated, uh, yeah, and if not vaccinated, a high percentage of them would also have developed immunity through natural infection. Because right now in South Africa, between 65 and 80 percent of people have been exposed and infected with a virus during the course of the first three waves. So those things all considered, it's not surprising that uh, the demographic of individuals that have been infected in this sort of cluster outbreaks, which is mainly a young demographic who have been vaccinated that they're not going to present with severe illness. But it also at the same time is cause for hope that this is not a virus that's going to completely be able to evade the immune system and has become much more virulent and it's going to end up causing more severe disease even in vaccinated young individuals. So I think you're correct. Most of these cases have been uh, mild, uh, but it's also about us being at a relatively early stage of this resurgence. In two to three weeks from now, we'll probably get a much better picture as to whether this virus results in significant increase in hospitalization and death. Because that usually lags behind by about two to three weeks compared to the infections that are occurring in the community. So um, there, are other, there are other examples, but we, there's no point pursuing them because you, I think your, your, your answer makes it clear. But, you know, people get people, at, uh, people a Spanish couple or a Spanish and Portuguese couple have been arrested in Holland for trying to leave Holland. Um, once you know and, and get back to spain and you would have thought that you wouldn't be able to do that if you were very sick i mean they managed to you know so there is sort of there's a little bit of early hope out there but the other thing i wanted to know was it probably doesn't matter where it comes from but is it important to know 
where it comes from because as far as I understand, right? So the Botswana government, Botswana spotted this thing first. The four four people, they say, entered its borders on diplomatic business on November 7th um, and tested positive on November 11th. Now, um, we don't know where these people came from. The Botswana government won't say. I mean, I really would like to know. Um, uh, but in theory, presumably, this variant could have been lying around for a very, very long time. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and it probably would have gone even unrecognized in South Africa at uh, the NICD and not actually responded to what was being reported as an outbreak uh, in Swanee uh, around the university uh, vicinity. So it was a response to that outbreak. Then NICD went out to actually investigate. And then coupled to that, uh, I think it was also in a Pretoria laboratory at Lancet, a private lab, where one of the scientists sort of noted that the PCR test that was being done, there was something unusual about how the readout was coming out as positive, where one of the components of it was coming as reading as negative, but the other three components of the PCR was test was uh, reading as positive, and that was reported to the NACD. So had that not taken place, we might have well gone for another few weeks with no travel bans or anything else, no one bothering to actually sequence the virus, uh, and then uh, probably would have ended up only recognizing this virus when some other country in the Northern Hemisphere uh, yeah. reported its presence, uh, thinking that it originated from there. So this whole notion... And we would, have, we would have had to ban them from traveling to South Africa. Well, what? that's what uh, government did previously. Uh, if you recall, after our first wave, government, when the Alpha Vienna started in the UK, South Africa's government decided to ban the UK and European countries from coming to South Africa. That's exactly what government did then. And then I said that was a really silly decision and had yeah. absolutely no merit. And equally yeah. so, the same applies now. Doesn't it just? And what amuses me most, and it teaches everyone a lesson, uh, particularly in my case, I hope the the British, Japan has completely closed its borders to everybody um, uh, indiscriminately, which is probably also useless. Um, but um, uh, it's going to, you know, it's going to cost. It's going to cost the rest of the world. We're talking about the world's third or fourth largest economy. Um, that's going to cost the people who uh, banned us um, more than they were bargaining for. I would have thought. Absolutely, the sort of a knee-jerk reaction usually has consequences. Uh, yeah. If you're wanting to really be serious about preventing the spread of the virus in your population, you need to have really robust systems to be able to track the initial cases and then do adequate contact tracing. But you need to close your borders to all nationalities and not just a handful of countries. Closing yeah. your borders to a handful of countries is a spectacular exercise in futility, uh, which uh, has been shown repeatedly through the, during the course of the past two years. Unless you're an island nation such as New Zealand, that you're simply not going to prevent the importation of these variants. And and so you you've um, drawn up a, a list of things to do and not to do, and and they're all they're, they're lovely. And I'm going to just go through a couple of them. I mean, because governments have ours included have, and I, although I thought Cyril Ramaphosa did quite well on Sunday night, um, and I'm glad he had a go at the people who were banning. Uh, our access to their countries. Um, but uh, fortunately, he didn't raise the level of um, state of disaster, uh, although he did say that he was going to come back in a week. What do you, what, when he comes back in a week, what do you want to hear him say? 
Well, I think if we see substantial increase in hospitalization uh, in specific provinces, then there might be a case, uh, and uh, the modeling suggests that those, those provinces or regions are likely to see overwhelming of healthcare facilities. Then I think what we would see is a tailored, a much more nuanced approach uh, in that those provinces will be requested to implement some levels of restrictions that will reduce the pressure on their hospitals. And one of the major things that's avoidable sort of immediately uh, is to prevent uh, admission of trauma cases. And unfortunately, when it comes to admission of trauma cases, it's about motor vehicle accidents, which are then uh, linked somehow usually to alcohol abuse. So there might be a more nuanced approach in terms of restrictions to try to reduce pressure on health care facilities by immediately avoiding things that we can sort of uh, prevent overnight, and that is hospitalization related to trauma. Uh, and that would free up space uh, and allow healthcare workers to manage the surge of COVID cases that could transpire. But all of that needs to be uh, based on science. And right now, over the course of the first three waves, we got a good idea in terms of how to predict what is going to happen when it comes to the rate of increase in hospitalization. So government needs to be totally guided at the regional level. Certainly, there's absolutely no place for a national approach uh, because the last uh, lockdowns that we went through was an example. We had a lockdown achieve pretty much zero in KwaZulu-Natal and the Eastern Cape, other than uh, worsening the economic status. And for Gauteng, it actually just came too late. It was implemented at a time when Gauteng had already peaked. So I think what we will see is a much more nuanced approach in terms of how government starts imposing uh, lockdowns, and it will be more regional, provincial based rather than uh, one size fits all. It's it's difficult though, isn't it? To, I mean, I, I I hope I hope you're right. You also um, you also say in an article you've written for the conversation that you uh, let's not indiscriminately oppose restrictions and but but except on indoor gatherings. You quite you were quite strong about that um, when I heard you speak on TV the other day as well. Indoor gatherings are a problem almost at any time during this pandemic, aren't they? Absolutely. Indoor gatherings uh, have been responsible for directly or indirectly for 80% of all infections that have transpired in many studies. And the reason for that, it only takes one person that's really shedding a lot of virus to infect 10 people in that particular party, as an example. That 10 people then go on to infect another 10 people. And obviously, with a compound, it's all been compounded uh, over a short period of time. You've got a massive number of additional cases. So I think if we're still going to allow for indoor gatherings, uh, and I think the number now is 750 or something, which is quite a large number, yeah. uh, the precondition to that needs to be vaccination. Uh, absolute, complete, fully immunized. Because although fully immunized are still at risk of being infected, they're less likely to transmit the virus. So in addition to them being less likely to be infected in the first instance, a recent study from the Netherlands shows that they were 60% less likely to transmit the Delta variant. So lower risk of infection, lower risk of uh, spreading the virus, equates fewer cases beyond even that specific gathering and ability to, con to sort of control the rate of spread. It's about the rate of spread rather than the belief that we can actually prevent infections. That's important. Do you, I mean, do they, they know this by now, surely? Well, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. I mean, we've been talking about this for months now. <laughs> I know. And uh, just tell me something. So, of the people who've been vaccinated in South Africa, 
um, in your opinion, and and you might be a bit biased because you were involved in one of, with one of the vaccines. But who is safer? If you've had your one shot of J and J, or you're double vaccinated with Pfizer, I mean, what is what's going to give you the better protection? And 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 we'll and and move it along to the, the possibility or probability that we will be provided with boosters in some sort of form. What would be the ideal booster regime? So, I mean, it really depends. Uh, when you ask who's going to be better off, it depends what you're trying to protect against. But in terms of the question, in fact, irrespective of whether you're trying to protect against infection and mild COVID, you're trying to protect against severe disease. Uh, without any question, two doses of Pfizer is superior to a single dose of J&J, including from South Africa's own data, where a single dose of J&J in healthcare workers uh, provided about 62% protection. How much? Uh, whereas a 62% protection against severe disease, against hospitalization. Uh, in Delta? Against Delta in South Africa. Whereas uh, two doses of Pfizer, two doses of AstraZeneca, two doses of most of the other vaccines, their protection against severe disease and death due, del- due to Delta is in a region of 80 to 90%. So two doses, the single dose of the J&J vaccine was fit for purpose at a point in time when there was no vaccine available, little vaccine available, and you were trying to get as many people vaccinated over the shortest period of time. So go out with a single dose, it worked. But it doesn't protect that well against infection at all. In fact, it probably doesn't work any better than an AstraZeneca vaccine in protecting against infection and mild COVID comp- uh, uh, from even the beta variant. But so would... two, dose, sorry, two doses but... of Pfizer vaccine certainly are superior to a single dose of J&J vaccine, uh, without any doubt. And a single dose of J&J vaccine in South Africa should be considered as partially immunized. Anyone that receives a single dose of J&J vaccine needs to get two doses. And probably quickly. But uh, what you're also saying, though, is that a major part of our industrial response to COVID, which is to make the J&J vaccine locally, may be entirely misdirected. It depends what you're trying to achieve out of it again, because right now there's no longer that much, especially for a country such as South Africa, that's able to engage in bilaterals. The challenge now is getting vaccines into the arms of people. So irrespective of whether we're manufacturing J&J in South Africa or whether we're importing uh, Pfizer from the US or wherever else it is, it's no longer an issue of vaccine security of vaccine supply. Now the biggest challenge is getting vaccines into the arms of people. And why is that, do you think, proving so difficult? Why, I mean, you know, having, having made such a fuss about you know, rich countries hoarding vaccines. We can't use the vaccines that we've got. We've got 16 million in the fridge. Yeah. So again, I mean, there's nothing straightforward with this pandemic. Uh, and when it comes to vaccine rollout, I think government, and again, this is something that we had warned already in January, completely underestimated what is required to actually implement a program where you're reaching out vaccines to millions of people. They came in with aspirational goal of vaccinating 40 million people uh, by the end of the year, which was always an aspirational goal that was going to fail. And if you want to do that, uh, then you need to have a proper communication strategy and uh, strategy and advocacy strategy in place. Not when you start rolling out vaccines, but before you start rolling out vaccines. In addition to which, you do not create uh, obstacles for people to get vaccinated. The EBDS system is an example and centralization about where people can get vaccinated. All of those are obstacles. Now, in addition to that, what we obviously also face with is the information of misinformation, which obviously results in hesitancy. And then I think in the South Africa, in the African context, not just South African context, there's still a huge amount of apathy around COVID-19. 
uh, just massive amount of apathy. People still don't believe that it is a disease to be taken serious. Seriously, they still uh, think that this is something that you can equate to the common cold, to the flu virus, as an example, which is obviously completely misguided. So, like I said, multiple issues, and then obviously this, we're not assisted when senior politicians, uh, political parties, and then the chief justice uh, have got sort of dubious uh, remarks around vaccines. So that undermines public confidence around vaccines, and it eventually adds up. So there isn't any single answer why we got 17 million doses of vaccines in the depot rather than in the arms of people. Uh, but I think it speaks about strategy that needs to be thought out well in advance. And this is a challenge we're going to, Africa is going to face next year. Africa is going to have a ton of vaccines come its way uh, in the first quarter of next year uh, because there's no longer shortage of vaccine supply. Uh, but Africa is going to struggle. We've already seen countries on African continent needing to throw away vaccines that have, trans that have expired now. And this is going to be the challenge, convincing the population to be vaccinated. Did you, just before I get on to mandates, did you ever follow what happened to the million doses of AZ that we gave away? Or was... Yeah, well, it was sent to the AU, who then promptly distributed it to other African countries about three to four weeks before it was going to expire. Those other African countries also had a beta variant dominating. Uh, they were considering this vaccine as being a second-class vaccine because it was being soft or shoved onto them from South Africa. And for many of those countries, they ended up tossing the vaccine away uh, because in a three to four week period, the countries were not were not uh, actually adequately pre prepared yeah. to actually yeah. roll out those vaccines coupled with that this vaccine is coming to us now from South Africa that doesn't want to use it. So that doesn't assist in terms of building confidence around vaccines at all. Yeah. yeah. Prof, um, just come to mandates. You, how does how does that how does that work? I mean, I just I was just listening to. A press conference, a Department of Health press conference, I think it was, um, and I, I, I'm sure I heard the minister say when he was asked about mandates that what they were doing was that they would support other people imposing mandates, but and he didn't say as much, but he left out the bit where we will we will impose our own mandates. So he's very happy for you know the, the the town library to say you know only vaccinated people can come in here, but the actual government doesn't want to be seen imposing mandates. And it's interesting. I mean, politicians are not keen on mandates, obviously, because there are elections around. They're not popular. The DA has said not a word about, about mandates. Everybody needs the crazy vote, you know. And um, how, do you, how, do you, how do we do this? How do we get mandates working? Yeah, I mean, it's really unfortunate because if uh, politicians are not able to show leadership around mandates, you don't expect the public to buy into it. And unfortunately, there was a time a few months ago when vaccines started to roll out, I think the president actually indicated that they will never make it compulsory uh, for people to be vaccinated. So it, it becomes difficult under that sort of scenario to sort of take a U-turn and now uh, argue that government is going to impose mandates. Uh, so I don't think we're going to get buy-in from political parties or politicians. I would be surprised if any political party comes out pro-mandate. Uh, so it's really going to be left to uh, businesses, for higher education institutions uh, to basically pursue it. But at the same time, I think there might be some sort of uh, space for government to make uh, mandates a requirement for people to engage in certain sort of activities. Something as simple as an example 
or people wanting to go to shopping malls, government can make it a prerequisite that people are, are vaccinated before they're able to go into that sort of indoor spaces. So although without imposing mandates on people, there could be a sort of regulation that almost compels people uh, to be vaccinated, similar to what France essentially did. Uh, when they started to roll out vaccines, they started to sort of stagnate at about 30 to 35% coverage. And then uh, the French government decided, well, if you want to go to restaurants and social activities, you need to show a vaccine passport. And all of a sudden, boom, uh, everyone's uh, forgot their reluctance to be vaccinated uh, and got vaccinated. Uh, so I think that's the type of approach I expect our government to take. It's not about saying that it's completely compulsory or mandated for people to be vaccinated. But at the same time, if you choose not to be vaccinated, you need to suffer the consequences, which includes not to be allowed in certain sort of spaces, public spaces as well as private spaces. Could you restrict uh, um, access to hospitals? Uh, certainly not. We can't restrict okay. access to hospital under any sort of scenario. Medical aid certainly can have a position that if you hospitalize for a COVID illness and you haven't been vaccinated, then you need then you're not covered for that illness. But certainly yeah. you can't restrict access to hospitals. But buildings like post offices, I'm, I'm sure you could, or um, uh, licensing more. licensing departments. That's uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's all we have time for. And I, I say I, I follow Prof. Mario's advice always to the letter, and I suggest you do too. Thanks, Prof, for your time once again so much. Keep fighting for logic and reason. Your country owes you one. I'll be back next week with a final podcast for the year. Until then, stay safe, wear a mask, keep your distance. Bye for now.